This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Thank Mrs. Goldman for arranging, uh, arranging this. Um, I also, there's like a double thing, because really, I've been giving forever. Actually, since I started this uh, a women's class, I've been giving it on Thursday. And everyone tells me it's the most terrible idea, because it's literally the worst night of the week for women to come to, uh, to listen to, to a shear. Uh, but for reasons that I don't know, it just kept on happening. So I'm actually happy that it was able to work out. For, if it did, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But it was able to work out to have um, the class on uh, not only a shear during the week, but also on Thursday night, also right you know, in the middle of the... Of all the Yemen Taifun. So, uh, for, for all who came and all who are arranged it. So, as we come to, to Yom Kippur, as we're in the Sarasimei Tshuva, I thought it's actually apropos to speak about a certain personality in, among the, the Tanaim. And not only that, but to gather from that, what I want to do tonight, Emir Tashem, is to try to give you the story of Elisha ben Avua, who was otherwise known as Acher, and then gather some sort of lessons that we can gain for that, and now we could enter the, the Yom Narayim with a, a little bit of a different perspective, and maybe, you know, make ourselves better just a little bit. So, when we speak about Elisha ben Avua, Elisha ben Avua was, just to know where, where he lived, he lived during the time of the destruction of the second base of Mikdash, and he was a contemporary of Rabbi Akiva. Just to tell you of what that time frame is. Not only that, he was the one of the main rabbanim, one of the main rebbe's of Rab Meir. Uh, people don't know realize who Rab Meir was. Rab Meir, if anybody lost it, Rab Meir Balanes, you know, Elikaidemir Anani. Everyone's very familiar with that. This is Rab Meir who we're we're dealing with. Rab Meir was such a genius that other uh, the other time had a hard time understanding him. That's the level that it was. Uh, his um, his wife was the famous Bruria. And not only that, that uh, um, her father was uh, was Rabbi Hanani ben Chadion, which was unfortunately uh, one of the Asari Ruge Malfas. And he was wrapped up in the Sefer Torah, and he was burned in the Sefer Torah. And uh, his, you know, her, Bruria's mother was, was executed by the Romans also shortly afterwards, and her sister was taken to like a house of ill repute. And uh, the Rameer saved her. Through mystical means, Rameer was able to save her. And actually, this is where the, the origin of Lakaidemir Nani comes from. So, Rameer was his Talmud. His contemporary was Rabbi Akiva, just to give you an understanding who Elisha ben Avua, who Acher, who Acher was. So, we're going to start off to try to understand his background. Once we have a little bit of understanding of his background, we're going to be able, this is such a funny setup over here. <laughs> Special, and the regular. Um, uh, so, so, we're going to try to get understanding on the background, and then we're going to be able to try to gather some information, some lessons that we could learn, and hopefully to leave here tonight uh, wanting to be a better person. You know, the, the, the famous uh, saying is that, that at least you have to want, but some people don't want, so they want to want. Right? And it depends. Everybody is on the level of want to want to want to want to the 10th power, whatever it is, but as long as you're on the right path. So the Gemara, if anybody wants to go and actually understand the story, the history of, of Elisha ben Avua, it's in the Gemara in Chagiga, and it's a Talmud Bavli and Talmud Yerushalmi. And the Gemara in Chagiga goes and says that, uh, you know, Arba Nichnesu Pardes, four people entered the Pardes. Pardes, literally the translation is orchard, but really what it means is, is Pardes stands for Pshat, Remesh, Drosh, and Said. It's the different levels of understanding of, of the Torah. Uh, so you have the simple understanding, the you know, there's different levels until you get to the highest level, which is the side, which is the secret. 
what what does it mean that they enter the paradise? How do you enter the paradise? So it's the, the easiest way, the most contemporary way to explain it is through meditation. You're able to go and reach to different levels in Shemayim. Uh, it's very famously known that Baal Shem Tov and other Rabban, big, big Rabban and big Doylem will be able to go and see things that were in Shemaim. How do they see things in Shemaim? They're right over here. How do they see things in Shemaim? So it's different. Shemus HaKadoshim, the Rashi goes and explains that they're able to go. So the Arba, the Nicholas of the this is talking about a whole nother level. They reach to the highest level possible, which is not going to get into all the details of, of what they did and what they saw and how they got into it. The result does actually bring down how it's, you know, you know now it's forbidden to do it. Obviously, for soon you'll see why. So, there were four that entered. They were Ben Azai, Ben Zaymai, Acher, and Rabbi Akiva. Three of them were harmed. One of them left without without any any issues. So Ben Azai came, and he was uh, he was physically harmed, and he he died. And uh, the Maharsha goes and explained that he was his soul when he when he went up to Shemaim, so to speak. His neshama went up to Shemaim, and his physical body was still here. His soul was so captivated by the spirituality that he sort of became connected to the spirituality, and, he, and, and his neshama just left him, sort of like a misa neshuka, like a like a like a kiss of death. And his neshama hence left him, and he died. Then you have Ben Zayma. Ben Zayma was, uh, you know, was affected emotionally or intellectually. He was, uh, he, he saw something that he was not on the level of Ben Azai, and he saw something, he was overcome with this perception of this reality that he wasn't uh, on the level, and he went a little bit, uh, you know, crazy. When the, his, his, his mind was, was more in the, you know, confusion. The, the simplest way is that he lost his mind. And that's how he was affected. Achar was affected religiously. He saw something that, that, he saw a vision that deeply confused him, that put him to a, a theological challenging situation, like he didn't understand it, and he went off the derach. He left, he left religion. Rabbi Akiva came in safely, and he entered safely. That's the Gemara. So, Achar, not only did he leave Yiddishkeit, but he left it to the, the extent that he would go to the Romans and he would and he would tell the Romans that the Romans were requiring the Yidin to work on Shabbos. So the Yidin tried to minimize the work on Shabbos. So they tried to do it in a way where the, let's say they're going to go and they're going to minimize the Chil Shabbos to a certain extent. But, you know, Elisha Benavu Achar, he was very well versed in all these things. So he was able to tell the Romans, no, 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 don't let them do it this way. If they do it this way, this is not really violating Shabbos. Let them do it X, Y, and Z and this way they're going to really violate Shabbos. And not only that, he when Went to, unfortunately, there are opinions that say that he actually went and, and he, he killed Jews, killed children to, so there's an opinion that says that he even killed Jews, or he sent them to the Romans to be killed. That's how far he left. And to tell you even how far he left, the Gemara in Yerushalmi, in the Chagiga, goes and says that something that, that, that's hard to understand. He was going and he was riding on a horse on Shabbos that was also Yom Kippur. He was riding on a horse, and where was he riding it? He was riding it near Kodesh HaKadoshim. This in itself is a whole question. You're riding on Shabbos, on near, the, the story goes that he was riding on Shabbos on a horse, that was Yom Kippur, near Kadesh HaKadoshim. And he hears a, he hears a voice that comes out. Here's a Baskal that says that, um, that everybody could return except for Acher. Everybody is able to return except for Acher, or the Gemara says Elisha ben Avua. Everybody could return. So he hears this, he says, wait a minute. He says, he knows that he went off. He says, if I can't return, if I can't do tshuva, then what's the point? What is the point? Might as well leave everything completely. And I uh, enjoy the pleasures of this world. So he goes and he encounters a woman of ill repute and he asks for her services. And she says, aren't you Alicia ben Avua? And first of all, if I stop it, I have a question on this and I still couldn't find the answer. Which woman 
that's in this profession knows who Elisha ben Avua is. And furthermore, Elisha ben Avua, you know how he responds to her? It was Shabbos when he came to her. There was a radish on the floor that, that was stuck to the ground. So he picked it up, which is a malachi, and all that did that on Shabbos, and he gave it to her. And she was like, well, it can't be Elisha ben Avua because you just did an iser of, you know, of one of the, one of the 39 malachas. This woman knows more than more from people know nowadays. But whatever it is, that's a different question in its entirety. But he goes and she sees that he takes and he's Michal Shabbos. So she goes over and she says, oh, you must not be Elisha ben Avua. You must be Acher. Acher literally means someone else. So he says, you must be. That's where his name came from. That's where Acher came from. That's where his name came from. And, uh, and, and, you know, and from there he went, he went completely off. And the Shlach Kaddish goes and says, what does that mean that he's not able to do tshuva? We know that everybody's able to do it. No matter how far you fall, no matter how much you did, you're always able to return. So the Shlach says that really he would be able to do tshuva. But what does it mean that everybody can return except for Acher? That means is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu won't encourage you to return. He won't help you to return. Meaning that you can return and you should return, but Acher is not going to get help. Meaning that every single one of us, if we want to do something good, HaKadosh Baruch Hu helps us. You know, we tend to think like, oh, it was all me. Like, you know, like, I did this. Like, no, no, no. You do like a small percentage, like Baruch Hu does like 99%. We do a 1%, like Baruch Hu does the rest. And in this case, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wouldn't have gone and wouldn't have encouraged Acher to go and to do the, to do chew. And that's what it means that everybody could return except for, except for Acha. That's how the Shlach goes and says. So now we have to understand, try to analyze the situation a little bit. What, what happened to Acha? Like what happened? So he saw a vision and then he went off. Like there's gotta be a background. No one just goes off by just one thing. So the Gemara brings down, I want to bring down six reasons of why the Gemara brings down that, that he, that he went off the derech. So Acha himself attributed that he went off due to the fact of his father. He blamed it on his father. What happened was, is that his father was a very wealthy, prominent man. And when it was Acher, when it was Elisha ben Avua's bris, he invited all the people in Yerushalayim to go and attend, and he invited all the, the you know, the, the G'daylim as well. And Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Shua was one of them that was, they were present. And, you know, they, they did the bris, and then people were eating, and Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Shua says, listen, he says, while they're doing theirs, meaning they're dancing, they're eating, let us do ours. We're gonna sit, and we're gonna learn Torah. And they started sitting and they started learning Torah. And what happened was, is that there was a fire that came down from Shemayim and it surrounded them. And Avuya, which was Elisha's father, goes and runs over and says, what are you doing? You're burning down my house. What are you doing? He says, no, no, no. He says, this is a, this is a fire of the Torah. And he says, what? Torah can make fire? And he says, if that's the case, then I want my son to make fires also. Like, I want him to be on that level also, and I'm going to send him to go and to learn Torah. So Elisha ben Avuya goes and says, since my father's initial reasoning for me to put me into Torah was not L'Shem Shemayim, was not for real reason. So hence, I came a little bit defective. And that's why he blames it on his father. We also, the, the Gemara also brings down that Acher's mother, when she was pregnant, she passed by this uh, um, this uh, house of Avaydazara, this uh, temple of Avaydazara, and they were giving karbanas to this uh, to this Avaydazara, and she smelled the she inhaled the the the, ins- the the smell of this carbon, and because of that, that penetrated to the fetus, and because of that, that affected the uh, that affected Acher, that affected the neshama. That's reason number two. Reason number three. And this is even before he entered the paradise, before he went into the mystical uh, realms. Acher was was known to that when he would get up from his from from learning in the base medrash, he would stand up 
and there would be like heretical, like like fierce books that would fall down from his lap. And what happened was he used to hide, he used to like this material, he would hide it in his robes, but when he started learning, he got so involved in learning that he forgot about it, he hid it from the students, but when he would get up, he forgot about it, and they just fell down. And he, so he had already some sense of like, like this, this fierce ideas that were already like, like creeping in. And the Gemara also says that he also used to go and he used to, he used to be heard, he used to be singing Greek songs. And uh, Greek songs are part of the Greek culture, and they imbue a certain t- type of, of subliminal messages. Just like nowadays, the music nowadays, people think that Gaisha music is not a big problem. It imbues you, it changes who you are. I've spoken to people who are used to listen to, to Gaisha music, and then they stop. It's a, you're a different person. It's subliminal. If you think about it, music is something very interesting. A sheer uh, idea of Torah, you can hear once, you can hear maybe twice. A third time, you're like, I know this by heart, I could teach this already, I don't need this anymore. Music, you can hear that song a thousand times. Well, how does that make sense? It's the same words. They're saying the same words. How do you, th- because it, it, it attaches to a different part of your neshama. It affects your deep, your, your, it penetrates deep inside. And when you listen, so Acher, we used to sing these, these songs, these Greek songs, and it affected him as well. That's reason number four. Reason number five, he once saw, that uh, there was a person that climbed up a tree, and there is a mitzvah of shuloch meaning that you're not allowed to take up, uh, you know, the the you have to send away the mother before you take away the chicks, the the the, the babies, the chicks. And Elisha ben saw that the one person didn't listen. He took while the mother was there, he took the chicks, and this person came down without any problem. And then he was watching, and he saw another person come, or maybe it was in a different scenario that went up. And he did Shulach He went and he sent the mother bird away. And he took the babies, you know, took the babies, as the Torah, you know, says that you should do. And we came down, he was bitten by a snake and he died. And he says, wait a minute. He says, the Torah says, The Torah says that if you go and you go, you do, you do this mitzvah, you're going to have long days. This guy didn't even have long minutes. He just came down and he was already killed. So it must be there's something, there's no reward in the Torah. Of course, we know this is referring to the next world, and we're not going to get into all the details of that. But oh, we, this is another reason why I said it must be the Torah is not, you, there's, there's no reward. That was reason number five. Reason number six, one of the Asar Ruge Malchus was uh, the Chutzpah HaMeturgamen. And he saw that they dismembered, unfortunately, this, this, this gadol. And uh, he saw a dog in carrying Chutzpah HaMeturgamen's tongue in his mouth. And he says, This is the reward of Tyra. Not interested. That was, uh, that was the sixth and final reason. Says Rab Chaim Shmulabet. Says really, says it's not, there's no one reason that goes and causes somebody to go off. There's a series of events that happens that causes somebody to do something. And this is anything in life. Anything in life. There's no one reason that you could just pinpoint and this is why this person went crazy. This is why this person has a bad marriage. It's a series of events that one after another causes it to happen. So Rab Chaim Shmulabet goes and explains that really, the, there was a seed of Acher's evil that started, that was planted by his father. It was by his mother smelling. And then it sprouted once he was started going and he started learning these Greek, you know, the, the Kfira books, let's call it. And then he started singing these Greek songs. And the more, the more, the more he began pursuing these, these, you know, Kfira ideas, these Kfira ideas, it came to the point where he was grappling with certain issues. He had, he had difficulties with certain, he already introduced it to himself and he had some issues over here. So, now he comes into a situation where he sees this, this confusing perception of HaKadosh Baruch Hu when he goes up to, into the paradise. And he sees his tongue in his mouth. And he sees what happens to this, to this person that goes and does Shiloh HaKan. This is sort of like the needle that just like knocked it in. And that caused him to his final you know, uh, you know, defection from, from Yiddishkeit. And that's what caused him to go off. 
The Gemara begins now, the end of Acher was that, you know, Rameyer, his student, always tried to go and bring him back. And he would never be interested. But at his deathbed, Rameyer was told that, that his Rebbe, at his deathbed, he was dying. He goes over and he says, now come do tshuva. So his, um, so, so his Rebbe, you know, Alisha Benavua goes and says, can I do tshuva at this stage of mine? I'm like, I'm literally one step, one foot in the next world. Can I do tshuva? And he, and he quotes him a, a pasuk and tell him, it says, touch of enesh adekat. You could bring a man to the crushing point, meaning to the final point, the timer shuva b'nei adam. And even at that point, like the says, return, come back. He says, yes, you could even return, even if you're one step in the next world. And Alisha Benavua began to cry. And then he passed away. And Rab Meir was happy inside because he felt that at least his, his, his Rebbe died while doing tshuva, or in the middle of doing tshuva. And it's very interesting, what happens afterwards is that uh, um, Rab Meir was privy to the information that there was a big commotion in Shemayim, what to do with him, what to do with Elisha ben Avua. At one point, he has a lot of Torah under him. But at another point, he has a lot of Averis. But the problem is that they can't put him into Gehenna because he had all, he has all this Torah protecting him. But they can't, you know, he was left in something that's called Kafakela, and then in this middle stage of ground. So they didn't know what to do. So uh, Rab Meir went and davened that he would be able to go and be allowed to go into Gehenna. Like it's a privilege to go into Gehenna. He was, he davened that he should be able to go into Gehenna, so he could get cleans and eventually he could go to Ganeidim. And Rab Meir said that when he passes away, He's going to take, uh, you know, the, uh, Elisha ben Avua's Rebbe, and he's going to bring him to Gehenna. And you're going to see that he's going to get him cleansed, and you're going to see that, how you're going to, how is he going to prove it? That there's going to be smoke coming out of Elisha ben Avua's grave. And Kachava, after when he, Rameir was Nifter, uh, there was smoke that started coming out from Elisha's, Elisha ben Avua's grave. And then later, many years later, Rav Yechanan and Amaira, he came and he says, when I pass away, he says, I'm going to stop the smoke. And also Kachava. And this is, this is how, how it ended. And this was the end of Elisha ben Avua. So let's try to go and try to gather some information over here and some lessons from this story. So, the truth is, before we need to go, there, there is a contradiction. There is a question that we have to address. And that is that there is a difference of the story in the, in the Talmud Yerushalmi and the Talmud Bavli regarding the story where Rab Meir was walking with his Rebbe, Elisha ben Avua, And Elisha ben Avua at this point was off. It was Shabbos. Elisha ben Avua was riding on a horse. And Rameir was walking beside him and they were learning. And they were walking and they were learning and they were talking and they were learning. And you know when you're talking, you're, you're not thinking. And uh, yeah, you see people that, that, that have, I'm like one of these people. If I'm on the phone for a long time, I'm like pacing up and forth, back and forth. Right? You're on the couch, you're on this, you're fixing this, you're, you're all over the place. You're not, you're not thinking, you're talking. And they were talking, they weren't thinking. Up came to the point, all of a sudden, Elisha ben Avua goes over to his Talmud, who Elisha ben wants to keep a Shabbos, he says, you have to stop over here, Mayor. So Rameer says, why? He says, because I counted, it's already, this is a Tchum Shabbos. It's already 2,000 Amas, it's past the Tchum Shabbos, you can't walk anymore. This is the level of Elisha ben Avua was. While he was talking, he was counting. He didn't keep anything. To the point that he had such respect, it must have been he had such respect for his Talmud, Rab Meir, because the other people, he, he, he persecuted against them. He went and he got them, the, the, but Rab Meir, for whatever reason, he says, now you have to stop. And he says, Chazar, you have to return. So Rab Meir goes to him and says, you too, you also Chazar, come back to Yiddishkeit. And he says, didn't I tell you? It says, it says over here, and now this is where it differentiates between the Talmud Bavli and Talmud Yerushalmi. And listen to this, it's something fascinating. The Talmud Bavli goes, he says, I can't return. It says, I told you, I heard a voice, I heard a basco, I heard that it says, Shuvu Banim, everybody return, Chutz Mi Acher. That's the Talmud Bavli. Everybody could come back except for Acher. But the Talmud Yerushalmi has the same story with a little bit of a different nuance. The Talmud Yerushalmi goes and says, Shuvu banim chutz min Elisha ben Avua, except for Elisha ben Avua, umarabi. He knew my power and he went against me and he rebelled against me. The question that is asked is, wait a minute, 
What did the voice, the voice could only say one thing. Was it Acher or was it Elisha bin Avua? Which one was it that it came out? A fascinating question. And furthermore, it says, what type of, why would the, why would a Baskel come out and say, everybody could come back except for you? Like, just don't tell him that. You know, like, it's like, it's like everybody's gonna get a prize except for you. Like, you know, how does that make a person feel? Alright, fine, you're not gonna accept this tshuva. Why is it, what's going on over here where, and we know everybody's able to do tshuva. So what is the Basco going and saying <coughs> that everybody could return except for Acher? So I heard this from, I believe it was Rav Yosef Doiv Halevi Salavechik. Listen to this, something that blew my mind. Uh, this, when I heard this, it was like, uh, this is a different level. What happens if you have a debate? You have an argument between Talmud Bavli and Talmud Yerushalmi. The halacha is, we go according to Talmud Bavli. So what did Talmud, Talmud Yerushalmi says, Elisha bin Avua. Talmud Bavli goes and says that it was Acher. So which one was it? So we go and say it must be that it was, it was Acher. Because that's a Talmud Bavli. Thank you very much. It was, it was, you know, speaking about that, I used to uh, drink a lot in my class. And my mother, you know, she, she would go and she would listen to my classes uh, because, you know, that's what a mother is supposed to do, I guess, you know. And, um, and my father also. And um, she says, what's this? Like, she would listen to it. She says, why? I keep on hearing swallowing. It's like, what's with this swallowing? It's so loud because the microphone is right here. It's like right near my trachea. You can literally hear the water go down. Um, uh, so since then, I've been trying not to drink. But sometimes I need to, so I appreciate it. Um, so when we go and we under- try to understand this, if, if Tama Bavli goes says, uh, says it's Acher. Tama Yerushama says Elisha bin Avua. We said that, Tama, that we go according to Tama Bavli, that's Acher. So what does it mean? So how come Tama Yerushama says Elisha bin Avua? It should have both said Acher. And the answer is, is that you know, and this is my understanding. It might not be exactly what Rav Yisrael will explain, but I believe it was. Sometimes someone says something, and sometimes you hear something else. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the idea is where you hear what you want to hear, you know, you see what you want to see. And really, what happened was, is that the, the, the Vakal really said, everybody should return except for Acher. And Acher heard except for Elisha bin Avua. Why did Acher hear except for Elisha bin Avua? Because there's really, there's two personalities over here. There's one of them, there's Elisha bin Avua, which was a huge, he knew so much. He was a level of Rabbi Ak- he was he was a contemporary of Rabbi Kiva. He was a, he was a Rebbe of Rabbi Meir. He was on a very, very high level. And that was Elisha bin Avua. But then there was Acher, there was someone else. Acher, literally the translation means someone else. There was someone else that was a sort of like a, not a split personality, but think of it like a split personality. There was a negative side of him. There was the Acher of him, the bad of him, and that what's, what's, what was the negativity of him. And what the Basco said says, everybody could come back, but don't, Acher, you don't come back. What's Acher? Leave the negativity. Leave the bad. Leave the Averis. Leave the negativity. Leave that out. Elisha bin you come back. Acher, you don't come back. Elisha bin says, wait a minute. Acher, Elisha bin one of the same person. says, I am Acher. He identified himself by his negativity. He identified himself by his problems. You know, this, the idea of, of you know, I am who I am. Accept me who, who I am. You know, I, you, you, you speak to people and be like, I don't understand. People should accept me for who I am. And the truth of the matter is, they should. Especially your husband. Especially your spouse should expect, should accept you. And I'm going to say something that it's, there's a caveat over here because I have to be careful, especially for anybody who's a therapist. But who said that you should accept who you are? Granted, self-esteem, you have to be happy, you have to be, you know, you're comfortable in your own skin. Of course, I'm not talking about that. But when somebody goes and says, I am happy where I am right now, that means that you're never going to change. Why should I change? I'm perfect exactly the way that I am. I have faults, yeah, but you know what? You got to deal with it. 
You know, so I, everybody has their own issues. Let my husband go and deal with it. Yeah, this is me. And I am, this is who you have. They're like, no, 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 that's not the way. Granted, your husband should accept you. Your husband should go and appreciate you exactly where you are. But you should not stop where you are. People should always be growing. You should always be going and trying to get better. Become a better, better spouse. You should become a better mother. You always focus on growing to the next level. If you're happy in your, in your status quo, you'll never change. So the first lesson that we can learn from this is that come to Yom Kippur, we have to leave every single one of us has an acher. There, there's, there's another, there's the averus in us, the, the, the negativity in us. That everybody come back except for acher. Leave that negativity back. Leave all that back. Return. You, you become better. But leave, you're not the negativity. You're not that angry person. You're not that impatient person. You're not the person that constantly screams. That's something that you picked up. You have a bad character trait. But that's not identify who you are. That's something that you have to leave behind. That's something that is not coming in Yom Kippur. That is something that everybody can return except for Akhar in our own lives. Except for the differences. Except for the negativity in our own lives. Let's go to lesson number two. Very often, when we come to a certain difficulty in life, it's always about the other person. It's my situation, it's my parents, it's my spouse, it's my children, it's my, it's my boss, it's my workers, it's my employees, it's my employer. We're always looking to put the blame on someone else. It's like so easy to go and put the blame on someone else. We, we have so much that we could blame at everybody else. And who do we usually blame when we come through to a certain situation? We blame Akher. We blame the other person. It's not my fault. I'm <laughs> like, no, no, no. Are you kidding me? Like, I'm so per... He is lucky. He is so... Does he even know how lucky he is that he married me? Like, are you kidding me? Like, I, like it's always the other person. The other person, it's always the Akher that comes to blame. It's never us. It's never us. We always find somebody else. And there's so many times where we come to a certain situation and we, we the first thing, it's initial, sort of like a gut reaction. It's like a reflex. We don't, like, no, no, no. It's, come on. <laughs> like, I'm perfect. Like, uh, you know, like, so we have low, somehow, somehow we're able to balance this, this dichotomy where we, we're so perfect and we still have so low self-esteem. I don't know how that works. Like, we have this dichotomy inside of us where everything is great, but no, it's always somebody else's fault. There was once a chassid that was, uh, recently got married, and he went over the first, uh, the first uh, Pesach, the first Seder night, he went over to his in-laws. And he was sitting there by the in-laws, and the, you know, they're going through the star, and everyone's giving the Dvaitar, everyone comes out, especially if you know, you're, you're new to the family, you don't give one Dvaitar, you have a Dvaitar in every single thing. <laughs> My father-in-law got to expect, the rubbish is the family, of course. You know, like, and you come with a binder, you know, like, and you start off with everything exactly what, and everything is working great. Comes the meal, and comes the soup, and uh, this this chassan looks down, this chassan looks down, and he looks, and he sees there's a piece of wheat kernel that's floating in the soup. And he starts, this is a starker boy, he starts screaming. He's like, Chometz! He's like, what are you doing? It's a Chometz! He's, he's almost having a heart attack. And the mother-in-law comes in, and the father, everyone's coming, he's like, what's going on? He's starting point, he can't, he's like hyperventilating, he's taking a brown paper back, he's like, it's Chometz over here, it's Chometz inside the soup. And the mother is going, his mother-in-law is looking inside, he says, how is that possible? And he's looking at his wife, and he's like, oh, forget about uh, the scene is happening over here. And he goes to his wife and he says, Look, we're getting out of here. A house that has Chometz inside there's no way we're staying here for Pesach. We have to get out of here. And she's sitting over there in the middle. She's like, you know, her first, her new husband. And then she's used to her parents. She's sitting over there and she's like, but, but, you know, and he's like, come out of here. And she's looking at her. Her mother's horrified. He's sitting over there. It's almost like a bus hit her that didn't actually hit her. She's 
just like frozen. He's like, how is it possible? I started cleaning for Pesach two and a half years ago. I don't understand what's going on. It's like, how is this even possible? And he's screaming. He's like, we're getting out of here. We're not staying in this house. This house is hummus. And she's sitting over there in the middle. This poor Kala is sitting there. She starts crying. She's like, but my chassan, but my parents, what am I supposed to do? And the chassan sees that he's not getting anywhere. He says, you know what? Let's come to the, let's go to the Rebbe. He says, we'll go to the Rebbe, whatever the Rebbe says, the Rebbe show you that I'm right. And they go to the Rebbe. And the whole, he's like, everybody's coming. He got, he got his, he's got his momentum. His anger is up there. Everybody goes into the Rebbe. And the Rebbe is middle of his, you know, say there. And, the, and he goes, this, this, this chassan goes and he says, you don't understand. He says, I just married into this family and they have chametz in the soup. He says, I said, we gotta leave this house. He says, right, I have to leave this house. How do you say the house full of chametz? Chametz, you know what chametz is? And he, he started giving a drasha to the rabbi. And the rabbi's looking at him. And then he's looking at this poor mother-in-law. Who is, it's a brach, she, uh, who knows what, would it, like, this mother-in-law would, would, would dig six, would just, she, if she had a shovel, forget about it, the story is over. Like, like, where, where should she be, like, she's in a place of so difficulty. And he looks, the rebel looks back at him, back at the mother-in-law, and the rebel goes over to the, to the chassan, and he says, give me a strimal. And the chassan goes and takes the strimal, he's like, oh, the rebel's gonna put a rabbit out of it, who knows what's gonna happen, you know, the mice, so you know, he, he take, he gives a strimal to the rebel, the rabbit turns over the stride mill, gives a little bit of a patch on the back, and out falls a bunch of wheat kernels. This is what happened was in the olden days. It says nowadays, at the Afrof, you throw taffies, you throw candies, depending on how much the in-laws like you. Maybe it'll be a little bit stronger, maybe a little bit softer, but you throw little candies at the chassan. In the olden days, the candy, you didn't have candies, so you threw something cheap, wheat kernels, you threw it at the, at the, at the chassan. And this chassan was sitting over there, he had his strimal on, and they threw at him different things, or he was walking down, and they threw at him different things, and it got stuck in his strimal. And it's, so the rabbi goes over to the, to this, to this chassan, to the chassan, and he says, it's not your mother-in-law's fault, it's your fault, it's coming from you. That's where it's coming from, the chametz is coming coming from you. How many times in life do we go and we say, it's the other person's fault. It's my spouse. It's my employer. And we don't look at the mirror. Don't realize, no, wait a minute. We have to stop for a second. It's us. Nine out of ten times, it's us that needs to be fixed. Not the other person. So the second lesson that we were to learn from this is when we come to certain situations, stop using the acher. Stop blaming the other person. Focus on yourself. You could change yourself. You can't change the other person. You could change yourself. That's who you should focus on. That's who you should go and try to make better. Let's go on to lesson number three. I don't know if anybody over here, probably nobody over here can relate to this, but uh, I don't know. Imagine a scenario where you don't like another person. Like, you know, like, like don't like, you know, like, you know, like, like, really don't like, like, like a level of like, ugh, you know, like, ugh, you see her and ugh, you get angry. There's a grudge, there's a whatever, there's a bad. When you go down the street and you see this other person across the street, are they talking about like a Haman or Hitler? Obviously, we're not talking about it. And you see that and you get angry and you get in a bad mood. Who does that affect? That other person could be listening to music or, or listening to Shirtar or whatever it is, right? I don't know, to each their own. And they're going and they're in a completely great mood. And then comes this, you know, you're coming over there and you see this person and your mood just turns right. You get angry. You get upset. Your whole day is ruined. You saw this person and you just, it just ruined your day. Who did it affect? The other person, it didn't affect one iota. It didn't change that person's day, not one bit. They don't even know that you're upset. You're sitting there, you're sitting there and angry and subrochen and, and upset and they're, 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 you know, happy as can be. There's no issues. Many times, we get into our own head and we 
make ourselves our own situations and we bring on the, the negativity to ourselves. You know, I've, now it's coming to Yom Kippur. I've been getting these questions like, like more and more frequent. You know, how could I be Michael somebody else? How could I forgive somebody else? They did X, Y, and Z and they didn't even ask you for Mechila. And I asked them, very straightforward. The fact that you didn't forgive them yet, who does that affect? Does that affect them? Or does that affect you? What it means is that when you don't forgive somebody else, that means that you're still holding on to it. So you think about it, you get upset about it, it affects you. So what you're doing really is you're affecting yourself, you're hurting yourself. That's the only person that you're, when you're going, you say, why should I forgive somebody else? For yourself, for your own happiness, just let it go. What do you gain by going and holding a grudge? What do you gain by holding this negativity? There's absolutely nothing that you can gain. You're affecting only yourself. How much happier we would be if we would only let go of certain things, we hold on to things. So we're so good at holding on to negativity and we forget the positivity that we, we, we bring ourselves to this, to this very, very bad state. You know, you look at a child. You take a little, the younger they are, the easier it is. Imagine this. You have a child and you get very upset at this child and you rebuke the child. Right? Nowadays, you send them to the corner. In the olden days, there would be something called patch that you would give them a little patch that they would, you know, you know, fix up. But of course, nowadays, oh, you're gonna affect the self-esteem. Okay, do it your own. But you go to a child, and the child starts crying. A little toddler. You take away his candy, you send him to the corner, you say, I want you to think about what you did. Go to your own private room with your own laptop and your own computer. I want you to stay there for five minutes and watch something until you realize on what you did. All right, we go and send them into the hall, and then the, you know, this kid goes, and he's upset. He says, no. I want to watch here. <laughs> I don't want to go up there. I, whatever it is, upset. And this kid at Sabrachan is upset. Now what happens if you go and you give this kid a lolly? Instantly they'll be like, oh yeah, it's all good. You take this little kid, right? This kid, imagine, chasushalem, you know, that never happened, but you know, a parent gives a little, you know, slap to, you know, a child was misbehaving, a toddler was misbehaving, says, no, you know, I stick a knife into the outlet, and she knocked the knife out, and the child says, why are you doing this to me? Like, why, what did I ever do to you that you have to go and you hit me? And, you, and he goes, and the child starts crying. The father comes, picks up this little toddler, and throws him up in the air a little bit. Right? The mother sits on the side, has a heart attack, and the father is throwing the, this, this child in there. What happened to this child? The second the child goes up, instantly the tears are still wet, and they're laughing nonstop. Now imagine the scenario, well it can't be the scenario because it will be very awkward, but imagine a scenario someone is, is, is going and crying, and another adult throws him up in the ear. Now, first of all, it'll be like, what are you doing? Like, are you kidding me? Like, what, besides the awkwardness, it's like, w- literally, what are you doing? But like, just try to picture the, the scenario without the awkwardness. Like, a person could be very, very happy, but if they're in a bad mood, they're not going to let themselves be in a better mood. They're going to be like, no, 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 I'm in a bad mood. Like, how many times do spouses, not, not anybody here, but like your friends, you know, they're right. So how many times do spouses are getting into an argument? And one forgets the reason why they're in an argument. But they just know they're upset. They're like, no, like something has, no, something was wrong. He's wrong. She's wrong. Something, we're just upset. We don't know why. We forget, but we hold that upsetness. What's the difference between an adult and a child? Famous saying, because a child would rather be happy than be right. An adult would rather be right than be happy. As simple as that. We hold on to the negativity. We hold on to the grudge. We hold on to all these bad feelings. Why? Because no. Because because she. I can't believe that she never did this. And we we go into our own heads and we hold this onto ourselves. We're only hurting ourselves. Rabbi Chaim Kreisworth was a Av Bezdin in Belgium, and one day 
he, uh, he was he went through the Holocaust, and one uh, you know during the Holocaust during the you know the concentration camps, one one person went over to him and he says, Rabbi, he says, I don't know if I'm going to make it, and I am extremely extremely I have millions and millions of dollars back then in a Swiss bank account, and I don't I, all my family that I know are no longer here. I says, I don't want to die just to be left in the bank account. I want to, please, I'm going to give you the PIN number. I'm going to give you the account number if you can memorize it. If you ever come across any of my family members, please give them to, give it to them. And the rabbi says, of course, you know, uh, you know, if I'll make it out of here, I'll, you know, by, by all means. And he gives them the PIN number and unfortunately this man didn't make it out of the Holocaust. 30 years goes by, Reb Chaim Krasnoth is in Belgium, he's an Avbezin over there, and there is a poor man that enters, that enters his, uh, you know, his shul. And the poor man starts going and starts, he says, I'm starving, I have nowhere, I have no money, I ripped clothes, and he starts, and he, his mom is tzabrachim, broken, nothing. And, the, you know, the rub gives him some food, and so they start schmoozing. And it turns out that this poor man, this homeless man, is a son of the person that had that millions of dollars in the bank account. And it's 30 years later. And he says, I can't believe I actually met you. I says, I knew your father in the Holocaust. And he says, and not only that, and he slowly gives him the information. You have to do it in a slow way. You can't give that shock. Uh, and he slowly gives the information that you're a very, very wealthy man. And this man, to the end of his days, he, was, uh, um, he lived, he lived uh, very, very comfortably, let's just say. And Rav Kreisos goes and says, says he learned a very important lesson. He says, this poor man, he had nothing. He had no food. He was starving. But was he a rich man or was he a poor man? In reality, he was a very, very rich man. He just didn't have access to that. He didn't know about the wealth that he had. Each and every single one of us has tremendous amount of potential, tremendous amount of self-wealth. We have so much in us that we have the access to if only we would go and we would realize what we have. If we only go and we look at what we have, but the problem is, is that we just don't know it. We put ourselves in our own negativity, we put ourselves in our own bad state, and we lose out on this potential. Every single one of us, you have the ability to be a great mother, you have the ability to be a great wife, a great spouse, a great work, you have the ability for greatness. But so many times, well, the way that we prevent it is only because of ourselves, we hold ourselves back. We all, we get it in our own ways. We are our own acher. We introduce to ourselves this negativity, this outside that we can't, we can't get out of it. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to where the solution is, is, is simple. Now, when I say simple, I mean the, the, the path is simple. The process is more difficult. And a simple example is, um, that I, I was speaking to, to, actually this is, this scenario happens way too many times and I can't really pinpoint the reason where you deal with let's say certain shalom bias issues and you go and you say okay listen what you need to do is you need to go to therapy you need to do and there was a few very very simple things that you can make it better but a person doesn't want to listen to it and again I'm not judging them it could be they were burnt out it could be they were tried it I know there was it's a very difficult path but sometimes like some let's say someone's going through anxiety or, or difficulties or something very very hard and there's a solution out there and the solution, many times it's therapy or whatever it is, you know, positivity. There's sometimes it's a difficult solution, sometimes it's an easy solution, but we don't go for it. For whatever reason, we just prevent it. And I, and I, I speak to people sometimes on a continuous basis where it's like, and, and they just won't listen. They just don't want to hear it. The, the solution is right there, but they, no, I'm going to stay in my negativity. For each person, it's a different thing. But how many times do we bring ourselves into this situation where we're only hurting ourselves? We're taking this and we're bringing this achar into ourselves. We're bringing this, this, this negativity into ourselves. So the question is, how do we get out of it? How do we get out of this negativity? 
So I heard this beautiful idea. I know it's not an LL anymore, but LL stands for Anila Dodi Vidodi Li. What does that mean, Anila Dodi Vidodi Li? Anila Dodi means I am for Hashem. Vidodi Li, and Baruch Hu is for me. But that means is, is that Anila Dodi, I, I take myself out of the, my equation. You know, many times we have our own like thought process where we go and we decide certain things. No, no, no. Says when it comes to th- things that I have to decide, I take myself out. I back up. And he says, Anila Dodi, I'm for Baruch Hu. Whatever is right, that's what I'm doing. And then the Dodi What happens is that sometimes we get into our own head. And how do you get out of your own head? You have to take a step back. It's, it's a, why, when people go and ask advice from a mentor, from a rough, from a therapist, most of the time, you know the right answer. You know what you need to do. Most of the time that people come to me to questions, in fact, usually if I'm able to, I get them to tell them exactly what they need to do. They know it already. It's simple. We have all, Baruch Hashem, we have brains in our heads and we know what, we, the problem is that we're stuck in the situation. When you're stuck in the situation, it's hard to see it. So sometimes you have to take a step back. And when you take a step back, you have a little bit of a clearer picture. And that's why you go and you say, okay, Anila Dodi, that I'm, how am I gonna, okay, I'll ask a rabbi, ask a therapist, ask a mentor, whatever it is. And I'll find out what is the right thing for me to do. And then the Dodi Li, then I can just for me. And then we see all our problems will answer. The problem is that we get ourselves into a situation that we don't want to. It could be ego. It could be we don't want to be vulnerable. You know, how many times that so, so many things can get resolved if we just Really, this is more for men, because women are very easily vulnerable. They put themselves out there. But like a man, a husband, like if they just communicate in a vulnerable way, like like the world opens up. But we don't want to because it's our ego. It's like, I, I well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not like, I can't get to that. So we put ourselves in a situation that we cause ourselves more hardship because we don't want to put ourselves out there. We don't want to put ourselves in a certain situation. So what happens is that if you take that step back, if you take that step back, and it's not only about you, you put look at the big picture, you look about what HaKadosh Baruch wants, that will open up to more, to, to, to more possibilities. This is Ani Ladodi, Ani. It's me and Hashem. There's nobody else. There's nobody else. There's no other Cheshbanis. It's just me and HaKadosh Baruch And there's an idea that when you do something for Hashem, you never lose out. There was a Rav by the name of Rabbi Ephraim Schwartz. He was a Reich Kalal in Elad. And he was trying to get an appointment for... for quite a few months, by a certain Gvir who had a foundation in Chicago and um, for his Kylo. And he requested a, you know, for, for a donation of $35,000. And he's been sending emails and he's sending different messengers. One day he gets a phone call from an international number, right? So he picks up the phone, he says, hello. And he says, hi, is this, you know, Rav Schwartz? And he says, yes, this is Rav Schwartz, who, is, who am I speaking to? He says, this is so-and-so, a secretary from this, you know, Mr., you know, from this, uh, from, uh, from Chicago. And so he's like, yes, how can I help you? This is what he's been waiting for for months. He says, we've got your application. We've spoken to a certain few people. We want to make an appointment next, uh, it was actually this coming Wednesday. Can you come to Chicago? And I gave, go to Chicago Golden Towers, the 67th floor, room 413. Can you come at 6 p.m. in the evening? And he says, I'll be there. He's an artist all the time. He goes, he hangs up the phone, he immediately calls his travel agent, and people don't know, now they exist, before orbits and before, this is where people used to go and call people, and they would go and get them tickets. And he would go, and he called his travel agent, the travel agent said, there's nothing direct, but what I could do is, I could get you to stop over in Paris for about seven hours, and then you'll get to the meeting in time. So it's fine, book the flight. He goes, he lands in Paris uh, Wednesday morning, early morning. Again, around Paris is a few hours behind um, uh, behind uh, uh, Chicago, so it was still in the middle of the night in Chicago. He arrives Wednesday morning in in, in Paris, and uh, his next flight is not for another few hours. He has some time. He says, "Listen, let me go out out of the airport and let me try to find the minion. I'll dive in traffic with the minion." 
He's very meticulous with Minyan. And he goes and he finds the nearest shul, and he takes a cat to the nearest shul. Once he gets to the shul, he realizes that he just missed the minion that finished. He says, they told him, don't worry, there's going to be another minion coming shortly. So he says, fine, not a problem, I'll wait. He's sitting over there, and by the time the minion's supposed to start at 8 o'clock, maybe it was a little bit of a high mission minion, it didn't start at 8 o'clock. There was like one person that shows up, you know, and then there was, a, you know, by the time 9 o'clock, you know, there's an hour goes by, two hours go by, and then finally, 10 people trickle in. And now it's getting close to when he has to head back to catch his flight. But he's in the middle of the, you know, davening. And he starts davening. And who becomes a chazan? There was an old man who had a yurt site for his father. And he is having kavana. He's enunciating every single word the way that it's supposed to. And he is davening at a snail place with a complete kavana. I don't know if you've ever been in a rush, but if you've ever been in a rush and someone's doing something slow, you go out of your mind. Like you literally, if you're ever driving and you're in a rush and there's someone over there that decides to obey traffic laws, oh, forget about it. You know, like, like, uh, what are you doing driving the speed limit? Like, don't you know, like, you get so upset. Like, it just, like, I can't, imagine the scenario that he's late and here we have over here, this old man, he's having kavanas of who knows what and he's going slow. And he's looking at his clock, and he's looking at the chazan, and he's looking at the, he can't even concentrate. And he's looking, thinking about what am I going to do? I'm going to miss my flight, I'm going to stay over here. He's going back and forth. And he says, you know what? He says, the schus of the tefillah, davani b'tzibor, I have to go, I have to stay. Like, it just doesn't make, he's a rosh kala, you know, like, this is a well-learned man. He's like, I'm staying. He says, the schus of that, I'm not going to miss my, I'm not going to miss my flight. So, he goes, and the chazan is going so slow. So meticulous to the point that he's like, you know what, I'm gonna miss it. There's like, you know, with all the, I'm gonna miss it. But he does a quick calculation and he realized that he's the tenth man. If he leaves, there's no minion. So says, how could I do that? So he ends up staying until the end of davening. Davening finishes, he runs out, he gets the first cab, he goes over to the cab driver and he says, take me to the airport as fast as you possibly can. The cab driver flies into the airport, he runs into the airport, and there's of course, whenever you're in a rush in the airport, when you come early, there's no lines in the airport, right? You walk in a red carpet, everybody comes here, can I take your luggage? When you're late, there's 7,000 people that are also late. And he's sitting over there, there's a huge line, and he goes over to people, and he says, please, he says, I, my, my flight's leaving in like five minutes, I gotta run, do you mind if I cut you? He says, everybody's flight is leaving in five minutes, right? You can't, and he was getting so many, finally he's able to get through security. And he runs with his carry-on, he runs to the, to, to the gate. And as he gets, gets to the gate, and he goes, and he says, you know, flight 847 to Chicago, right? This is right where I am, and she's like, She's like, yeah, but he says, the gate's closed already. And he's like, what? He's like, yeah, we just closed the gate like a minute ago, which is like literally the worst thing that you could tell somebody that just got to the gate. Like, oh, so if I got, I got another green light, I would have been here. And she goes, yeah, like the cat, you can see the plane is taxiing. I don't know why she's telling you. You see the plane is taxiing. That's the plane leaving. And he looks at the plane and he looks at her and she's like, that, there's my $35,000. There's my donation is flying off with my flight. And he's going out of his mind. And he's like, she's like, there's nothing to do. And he goes and says, maybe you can get me on another, is there another flight to Chicago? And she goes, she goes into the computer, and for some reason it takes about seven minutes for her to look up what anybody could look up in orbits, but whatever it is, she looks, takes seven minutes, and she's like, no. He says, I'm sorry, the next flight to Chicago is tomorrow. And he's like, what am I going to do? And he's like, he's thinking, he's like, he can't call. He can't call back into Chicago to postpone it because it's in the middle of the night still. And, you know, it's just to, to wait over here doesn't make any sense. So he's thinking about it for a second. He says, what am I going to sit over here in, in Paris for? And he goes and says, uh, you know, when's the next flight back to Tel Aviv? When's the next flight back to Israel? And she looks and says in about seven, eight hours, there's another, uh, there's another flight. 
And he says, can I move my ticket earlier? Can I go back if I miss the, this flight? And she looks at his empty seat. She says, not a problem. I'll book you on it. He says, fine. Put me on that flight. He goes, now he has about seven, eight hours to spare. What is he going to do? You know, so he goes, he decides, he goes back out, takes a cab, goes back to the shul. He says, let me learn a little bit. What am I going to do? It's lost, it's lost. You know, sometimes you got to move on in life. And he gets into the shul. And as he walks in, he sees this well, this, this, this distinguished, uh, you know, man, elderly man is sitting over there and he looks very, like vaguely familiar and he's staring at him. And the guy's, you know, the, this, this elderly man who goes in and says, gives him a show. Look at him, you know, like, how are you? And he's like, he's like, where do I know this guy from? And he takes a quick glance at his talus bag. And he realized this is one of the biggest gavirim that gives the biggest amount of money to different, you know, maestas in Eretz Israel and America, all over the place. And he's like, I can't believe it. And he starts talking to him and he says, you know, like, you know, he starts explaining to him about his yeshiva, his yeshiva and his, his avrechim that he's going and he's trying to raise some money out there and he gives him the, the whole spiel. And this, this wealthy man is literally listening to him. He's like, usually there's secretaries and this. He has a certain amount of time. This guy's giving him all the time and he's listening. He's very interested. He's like, oh, tell me more about this. And he's giving him all the information. And uh, this wealthy man goes and says, listen, he says, I flew in here. I just flew in this morning. I came in for uh, a bris of my grandson. I'm the sandik. And he says, I wanted to do a schus for the, you know, for the, you know, for my grandson. He says, giving money to your kail, I think that's a good schus for them that he should grow up to be a big tamahacham, a big tzadik. So he takes out his beautifully bound leather checkbook and he writes out a check, folds it, you know, gives it, to, gives it to the, to the resh kail. The resh kail does Every fundraiser knows exactly what to do. Does a, the quick glance before you put it in the pocket, you know, like very quick. And he had to double take. He's like, wait a minute, did I just see that correctly? And he looks back down on it. And it was, uh, it was a check for more than double what he was going to collect in Chicago. It was a check for $72,000. And he can't believe it. He can't believe, and, and as he, he thanks the, you know, the, the, the benefactor, and he walks away and he's like, he's like, look at how Minashamayan this was. He says, he's not the personality, just walk to random people. Some people are like that. They see someone that even they think might be, have money, they go and they start giving all their whole spiel. He was a personality, he only appointment, he was very methodical, very systematical, has to be with appointment, has to be in the right, they have to agree to it. He's, it's not his type, you know, to go, and not only that, he went, it's like the whole thing may know, he says, this is all Minashamayan, and he says, this is the schus of davening with a minion. He says, this is where I learned this, this was of Davide with a minion. And he goes, and now he's in a great mood. Right? He made double what he would have read. He sits over there, he learns six hours straight without a sweat. And then he gets on the plane uh, to back to Tel Aviv. He lands in Tel Aviv, he opens up his cell phone. And there's a voicemail that's, for anybody that doesn't know, voicemails before they had WhatsApp, the, you could call somebody and you leave a message and they have to, you know, get to the, to, to the message afterwards. He gets a voicemail, back then they still have these kosher phones in Israel, which doesn't have WhatsApp, we're not gonna get into that. Anyways, he goes and he has this, he has a voicemail, he picks it up, it's the secretary of the wealthy benefactor from Chicago, and he starts saying, he's like, oh no, but she starts off the message with apologizing, I'm so sorry. He says, last minute, we had to cancel. He says, the, 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 the wealthy guy, he's not going to be there. And he realizes you're probably on the plane by now. He doesn't want to make you come. Don't worry, the check is in the mail. And within a week later, he gets a check for $35,000. He comes out of this story with three times the amount that he came in for. Because when you listen to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you never lose out. And we have situations in our lives where we're not sure what to do. We don't want to put ourselves in a vulnerable situation. We don't want to put ourselves out there. But if it's the right thing to do, you do it, you'll never lose out. Guarantee. You might see a little bit of friction in the beginning, but in the big picture of things, you'll never lose out by doing what's right. And that is the third lesson that we learn from, from, from Acher. That even though that Acher came to a point 
where he thought it's all over. There's no point of doing tshuva. There's no point of getting, of like getting over there. But what we have to do is like, even though we come to a point sometimes where we feel like there's a point of no return. We feel like maybe this relationship is over. There's nothing to discuss anymore. We feel like there's nothing to deal. There's no point of no return. There is always a point that you're able to do something. If you do what you need to do, HaKadosh Baruch will take care of the rest. Let's go to the final lesson. And with that, I'll end. The last lesson is that the Rambam goes and brings down in Hilchas Tshuva that even if you have a kaifer, even if someone who doesn't believe in the Torah, doesn't believe in anything, he has, loses his share in Olam Haba. But if he does Tshuva or she does Tshuva, they're able, there's nothing that stands in the way of Tshuva. There was once a tzaddik that had a, mamish a tzaddik that had a son, unfortunately, went off the derech and caused the family and the father a tremendous amount of heartache of hardships. And, you know, unfortunately, this son, he, he passed away very young in a compromising way. And the father was sitting by the, by the caver by when they were burying him, and he was screaming and he was crying. He says, my son, my son, he says, I forgive you 100% for any hurt that you caused me. He says, I don't want you not to go to Gan Eden because of me. He says, I forgive you for everything that you have done. I want you to go straight to Gan Eden. I don't want you to suffer one bit because of me. What does a parent not do for a child? A parent will do anything for a child. They won't stop, they'll do anything. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu is even greater. The love that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has for each and every single one of us is even greater than a, than a parent has for a child. There's no point where you came, where you ended up that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will say, no, I'm not going to let you come back. There is no point you could always come back. Yeah, Acher, the other, that you leave out. That's not, that, you don't come in with that. That, the negativity, the bad, the virus, that you leave out. But the, but you, you can always come back. When you have, there was once a, a Mekubal, I don't know if anybody, growing up I used to go to a lot of Mekubal, my father used to take me uh, to a lot of Mekubal, but now I still do, I still go and I go to Eretz Shalt and Mekubal, and you go to a Mekubal, like a well-known Mekubal, you can wait online for like three hours, easy. Like I remember still me and my brother would fall asleep on the chair until the time for us to come in, and we, we didn't used to wait that long. And we might, you know, we would come in and we would get pushed in, and then we would go get the, you know, you know the brachas, but if somebody went, goes, and walks in and just cuts the line straight in, Oh, forget about it. Everybody starts screaming. Whoa, what are you doing? I'm waiting over here three hours. Everyone, some just, just scream. They're just, they're just scream. And, you know, okay, they're sitting over there. It's mamish, like, you know, they open the door and everybody just, you know, just tries to, like, you know, squish right in. But once the guy says, no, wait a minute, this guy who just comes in, it's, it's the rabbi's son. All of a sudden, the rabbi's son comes in. There's like no one asking. Well, of course, he could go right in. There's no, there's no questions that ask. Hakadosh Baruch Hu is our father. Avinu There's no, the, the, the guy could sit over there and wait. We could just walk right in. We could always talk to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. We're always there. It's oh, it's like one phone call away. We're always able to go and talk to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Rav Yosef Pollock used to give a shear every night in Tel Aviv to a group of uh, guys. And he was very, very meticulous about keeping the shear. And uh, one one particular um, one particular night was very, very stormy outside, and no one showed up. And he says, "I, I don't want to give up the shear. I need to." You know, he wanted to go and continue the shear, but he says he needs to give it to somebody. There's no one here, so he decides he's going to take a walk out and tell you know, tell it. And he's going to see. This is years ago. He finds a house with the mezuzah. He'll knock on the door. Maybe the person wants to learn Torah, and you know, he could go and, and continue with the shear. And he's walking, walking. He comes up to this house. And he sees a mezuzah, so he starts knocking on the door. He hears like fumbling in the background. And the door opens up. This disheveled secular man comes out. He says, yes. And the, the rabbi looks at him, and he's like, you really secular. He's like, mezuzah. He says, maybe you want to learn some Torah. Like, you know, I mean, Chabad are used to this, but it's like a normal thing. But like, you know, someone's I used to it, would be like, maybe you want to come and, and learn some, uh, some Torah. And, 
he goes and he says, who sent you? And he says, no, like, this is Mossad, is like over here. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, no. I, and he starts explaining to him. He says, give a share. There was nobody here. And he says, I came. And the guy gets a little bit more calm. And he says, I want you to, I want you to come in for a second. And he comes in. He comes into the, um, and he says he brings him to the bedroom. The whole place looks like a mess. And there's a pipe that's sticking out of the bedroom. And there's a rope that's hanging over there with a little bit of a noose that's a handmade noose that's made up there. He says, I want to tell you. He says, the minute that you knocked, I was, there was a chair there. He says, the rope was on my neck. He says, I'm a Holocaust survivor. I'm all alone. No one, ever since I moved into this house, no one has ever knocked on my door. I'm alone. I'm full of misery. I have nothing in this world. And I'm so tzabrachan, so broken. I said, enough is enough already. He says, I can't, he, I can't handle it anymore. He says, I'm ending it all. And he says, I got on the chair, I put it around my neck, and I looked up and I said, I was, I, you know, he was a secular guy. And he says, God, if you're there, if you want me back, send me a sign and I'll come back. He says, that second, there was a knock on my door. And he says, you came in. And he says, yes, I do want to learn. And he ended up learning. I believe this rough said his, this story at his shiva. By the time he was, he passed away, he was fully, fully from. There's no such a point where you're, you're, there's a point of no return. There's always something that you could do. There's always a point that you return, that you can return. I want to finish off with one story. It was 1984 and the Baba Sali was Nifter. And it was very, they're very famous. This is the, the, the fifth of Shvat of 1984. On the way back from the Levaya, there was a car accident and four tzaddikim were killed. It was Rabbi Yeshua Blas, he was a member of the Chavra Kadisha, Rabbi Yeshua Margalit, who was a director of Yad Eliezer, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Weiss was the son of the Spinka Rebbe, and there was another Talmud Chacham by Rabbi Yaakov Berkowitz. There was a fifth person in the car by the name of Meir Abish Weiss. He was an 11-year-old grandson of the Spinka Rebbe. And uh, the, when the car accident happened, there was within a few minutes, the paramedics were on the scene, and it was very obvious that the four... Older people were already passed away. And then there was a little boy. This little boy, he was 11 years old, and the paramedic was there, and he saw that, I don't know how to say it in the nice way as possible, but his insides were not inside, they were outside. His internal organs were, were outside. And the paramedic was like, what's the point? And then something happened, and the paramedic started putting his, his organs back inside, trying to stop the blood. An ambulance came, they brought him to the local hospital, which was the Barzillai Hospital in Ashkelon. They quickly saw that there's nothing that they could do. They went and they flew him by helicopter to Hadassah in Karen in, in Yerushalayim. And um, the boy, the doctor said, the boy is not going to, literally his organs were outside. This, is, this boy is not going to make it. They told the, doc, the doctors told the family the boy is not going to make it. And they were preparing, this boy's father was also in the car. They were preparing for this boy's father's funeral. And they didn't know what to do. Should we wait? Because the boy's not going to make it. Maybe you should do the Levi together. Maybe you should do it first. So they went to the Spinker Rebbe. And the Spinker Rebbe says, No, you don't wait. You do the Levi for the father. And he goes over to his daughter-in-law. And he goes, uh, with this, the person that, that was Nifter was his son. He goes over to his daughter-in-law and says, Your place right now, you don't, you don't, you don't sit Shiva right now. He says, Your place is in the hospital with your son. He says, When you're Isaac with Mitzvah, you're Patam in a Mitzvah. You're right now, you're Isaac in the Mitzvah of, 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 of dealing with your son. And the Rebbe goes and he proceeds to give the eulogy and, and, and the Leviah for his son. And he gives a very heartwarming, long eulogy. And he starts in the middle of it. He goes and he says, you know, it says in your Torah, Kaddish Barucho, he goes, the speaker Rebbe. It says, you're not supposed to slaughter the, him and his son in the same day. And the speaker Rebbe says, please have mercy on this family. Don't take away the father and the son of the same day. And he goes and he says, all I'm asking you, Kaddish Barucho, is to listen to your own Torah. And they bury the father. The boy had a miraculous recovery. 
they thought that he was gone. And as he was recovering, they said his kidneys is shot. His liver is shot. He's going to need dialysis. He's never going to make it. The boy had a complete recovery. He had a complete recovery. And what the doctor says is the reason that this boy survived is that there was a paramedic on scene. And the paramedic put back the organs and he stopped the blood. That's the, that's the reason the boy survived. So the family wanted to meet this paramedic. Who is this paramedic? So they put in ads in the newspaper and Ashkelon says, put in the ads to, to, to go and get this, uh, to whoever saved this boy, to please come to the, you know, the speaker courts over there to, to, you know, the family wants to speak to you and give you things. A day or two go by, and there was a Sephardic man that walked in, beer-headed, bald, you know, like without, no relation to Yiddishkeit. And uh, the family was welcoming him. Thank you so much for saving our son. You know, you know, you, like you literally saved his life. And as, you know, the conversation pursued, the, one, of the, one of the people sitting there asked him, says, what made you put the organs back in? Like, you know, it seemed like everyone says that he was, he was gone already. And the... This paramedic goes and says, you know what, when, when I came to the scene, I saw the four people that they were already no longer with us. And I saw the boy, I saw he was taking his last breath. Really, I says, there's nothing for me to do. And I was just sitting over there and I was waiting for the ambulance to come. There's nothing that I could do for this boy. But then this elderly gentleman came in and he says, it was an elderly gentleman with a long beard. And he, sa- and, and he said, why are you not saving this boy? And I explained to him, I says, his, his organs are outside his body. I can't save him. There's nothing to do. And this elderly gentleman says, so you're not going to try? He says, at least try to save him. And he says, you know what? He was right. So I tried to save him. So I started putting the organs back and I started holding, you know, holding the pressure until, until it came. And the family says, who is this old man? Now we have somebody else we have to think. And he says, I don't know. I've never seen him before. I says, I'm a local. I says, I've never seen him before in my life. And they continue the conversation. As uh, it came time for him to leave, he, he, starts, he starts going out, and he looks on the wall, there's a big painting, there's a big picture, and he starts staring at it, and his eyes open, and he starts screaming, that's him, that's the one, who, he was younger, but that's the one who came and he told me to go and to put the, the organs back inside the boy, to go and try to save him. And the family member says, no, he says, he says no, he says, that can't be him. He says, no, that is, he was a little, he was older when he came to me, but he says, that's for sure him. And the family, the, the family member were, were turned white. He says, how, that, that person in the picture was Chakal Yitzchak of Spinka. He passed away 40 years before in the Holocaust. He says, the person is not, has not been around for 40 years. And he says, there's no doubt that is the person that came and told me to put it back in. Because there's never a time where we should give up. Now, this Rav Meir Abish, he has a yeshiva in Bnei Brak. He has a base medrash in Bnei Brak. Hopefully in the Lai Baruch That Now, what we have to realize is there's never, even when it looks so bleak, even when it looks like it's over, even if Baskal comes out and says everybody could return except for Acha, there's no such thing as it's over. There's always something that we could do. The lesson and the fourth and final lesson we could learn from this story is that we never give up. We never give up on our relationships. We never give up on our children. We never give up on ourselves. There's so much that we can become better. And when we become better, we become happier. That happiness is part of the better. Success is part of our better. We, can, we should never ever give up. Don't settle for mediocrity in yourself. Because we each have potential for greatness. The problem is that we introduce this acher in us and we bring ourselves down. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu should help us that 
come this year, we should be signed in for an amazing, we should have a gemach simtav for an amazing year that I can just give us. And we should take all our negativity, all our acher, all our complaints about other people, all our acher and our negativity on ourselves, all the things that we have bad about ourselves, and we leave it in the previous year. We come to this year with our true being, the pure neshama that HaKadosh Baruch Hu give us. And with that, we'll have an amazing, successful year. Yashikayach. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.